What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to The Truth Show with Jim Breslow, the podcast that dives deep into controversial and unresolved issues of our time in order to discover the hidden truth. You can find us at hiddentruthshow.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Hidden Truth Show. Here's Jim Breslow. Welcome back, everyone, to The Hidden Truth Show. We are extremely honored to have today's guest. It is astronaut Ron Garan. Garan has spent 178 days in space, has traveled more than 71 million miles during 2,800 orbits of our planet. He flew on both the U.S. space shuttle and the Russian Soyuz spacecraft, lived on the International Space Station, and accomplished four spacewalks. His new book is Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution. Space exploration, he says, is the secret to bringing humans together here on Earth. As Ron says, we are not from Earth, we are of the Earth. Before we get to the interview, just a reminder, support us please on Patreon. You'll get extra episodes, a Hidden Truth ball cap, email access to me, and a lot more. Just $5 a month. Go to Patreon, Hidden Truth Show, click on the link in the podcast description. Okay, here is our interview with astronaut Ron Garan. How many times have you been to space? Uh, I've been to space twice. Uh, I flew the first time in 2008 aboard uh, Space Shuttle Discovery. It was a construction mission. We brought up and installed the Japanese laboratory to the space station. I uh, had the opportunity to do three spacewalks on that mission. And then I flew again in 2011. And I flew uh, on a Russian Soyuz spacecraft uh, as a fully integrated member of a Russian spacecraft crew. Uh, to the International Space Station and end up spending six months uh, or almost six months on that mission. Wow. Yeah, that second mission sounds very similar to Anusha's uh, one because, mm-hmm. yeah, did it leave from Kazakhstan? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a little bit different than the U.S. space shuttle, right? How would you describe the difference between that Russian rocket, <laughs> which is kind of the old school way to go yeah. to space, right, compared to the U.S. space shuttle? I think the big difference was... Um, the the Soyuz flight with the Russians was was fun as it was happening, <laughs> and and the the space shuttle mission. When I look back on it, it's it's fun. But at the time, as it was happening, I wouldn't classify it as necessarily fun. Uh, and I, I, there's a number of reasons for that. One is the space shuttle was my first flight. You know, I didn't know exactly what to expect. I had a lot of responsibilities. You know, a lot of things I could I I could do wrong. Um, and on, on the second flight uh, with the Russians, it, you know, I knew I knew what to expect. I had been in space before. Uh, I didn't have a lot of responsibilities, um, and you know, really, all I had the big thing I could do on the 
on the way up that uh, I didn't have the luxury to do on the way up of the, of the shuttle was, was look out the window. And so that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. The other thing is the shuttle is this big, massive, powerful vehicle um, that you're you know, inside with six other people. Uh, the, sh the Soyuz is such a small spacecraft. Uh, it's like three guys in the trunk of a car. You know, our knees are in our chest, and uh, it almost felt like you're wearing the rocket on your back. It's you know, every pump that turns on, every fan that turns on, every explosive bolt that fires, you feel that. And uh, it was a you know, <laughs> it was a much more intimate experience, I think, from that point of view, because you, you felt everything that was happening. Yeah. The only personal experience I can relate to that is the first time I, I flew in a helicopter in uh, Kauai, Hawaii, and just a little nervous and everything's new to you. And then the second time I did it, you can kind of really relax and just kind yeah, of exactly. take everything in. Right. Is that, how do you pronounce the Russian rocket? Su Su Soyuz. Soyuz. Is, are they still going into space? They are, yes. With that, that same, that same uh, it's it's basically the same design they've been flying for over fifty years now, and uh, they tend to make uh, incremental, uh, you know, uh, modifications, incremental improvements. Uh, they tend not to, if they find something that works, they they tend to stay with it and uh, just add on to it, as opposed to you know tearing up the blueprints and starting over. What was the main advantage of the space shuttle? Because the U.S. obviously migrated from our similar type rockets that originally took us to the moon into uh, the space shuttle. Yeah, the space shuttle was and probably will be for a long time one of the most the most versatile spacecraft ever ever built ever flown, you know. The, it, it had so many different roles that it, it could accomplish. First of all, it had a huge payload bay that could bring up the major, you know, the big pieces of the space station. It could deploy satellites, it could retrieve satellites, it could uh, you know, one of the big things, it, it was its down mass, you know, how much it could bring back to Earth uh, and land on a runway without smashing it into to the ground or smashing it in, into the water um, uh, as capsules do. And so the ability to bring uh, a lot of payload, uh, scientific experiments, um, uh, parts of the space station that are inoperative and we want to find out what why they broke, why what the failure modes were, uh, the ability to bring those back and fly them back onto a runway uh, like, an, like an airplane uh, was a, a really great uh, versatile uh, part of the space program. So they, they call it the International Space Station, but was it really the U.S. that built it? No, not at all. It was 15 nations. That built the space station. Uh, the U.S. built a big part of it, uh, but uh, all of these nations contributed, uh, and all of them are complementary. The, the the different parts of the space station, uh, the different parts of the space station that were built by the different nations, uh, in some cases had completely different engineering philosophies, uh, technical capabilities. Uh, but when you look at the whole thing as a whole, uh, it really makes it much more resilient uh, and uh, much more capable because of those differences that we brought into the space station. But all of the materials that make up the space station came from U.S. space shuttle flights? Not at all. No. no oh. there, were, there were Russian flights. There were flights by the, the European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency. So it was, a, it was a, a, a collaborative effort from all those different nations. I guess I thought that we were the only ones with a space shuttle. Who else had we a space shuttle? We were the only ones with a space shuttle, but we're not the only ones that could launch things into space. Um, so the other nations... Uh, there are Ariane rockets that the French launched, uh, HTVs that the Japanese launched, uh, obviously Soyuz that the Russians launched. So it wasn't just the U.S. Gotcha. So those rockets were able to bring things up that ultimately connected with the space station exactly. and deliver whatever materials. Exactly. And, and, and what's the current state of the International Space Station? 
Well, it's fully operational. It's been in uh, continuous operation with a continuous human presence uh, for 21 years now. Um, it's scheduled to uh, the, the contracts uh, of, the, of those 15 nations, I think, go out to 2024 um, if it hasn't been extended. Um, but I think it's a little bit up in the air what's going to happen after 2024. I can't imagine that uh, people are just going to give up on it. It's such a capable it's probably the most complex, complicated structure ever built. It was built in space. Uh, it's providing tremendous benefits to the to the world through the scientific research that's being conducted on board. Uh, what I what I suspect will happen is, in some cases, in some of those nations, uh, some of their um, their ability to use the space station to to, to operate the space station will be uh, transferred over to commercial activities potentially. But I, I don't know that for a fact. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mm -hmm. And am I correct that there now exists a Chinese space station? There is a Chinese space station, and um, uh, the, the, the Chinese have uh, grand plans to, to go to the moon and to establish an outpost on the moon as well. And their space station is fully operable, as far as you know, and they're making visits to it and keeping uh, astronauts up there. Yeah, I, I, at the at the moment, I know I know that that was the case. I'm not sure exactly what the status is right now. Uh, I think that I think that they might be in between uh, missions at the, at the moment, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And and that's the only other space station that can house humans. At the moment, there's a lot of commercial activities that are planning to build their own space stations in orbit. Um, from a from a strictly uh, commercial point of view, Who, who's got the lead on that? Um, well, there's a, there's a number of com companies. Is uh, Sierra Space, uh, Bigelow, um, you know, there are different companies like that. Uh, that uh, I know SpaceX has has uh, their sights set on not just you know uh, orbiting uh, capabilities, but also lunar and uh, onto Mars. And so there's um, you know what used to be the um, sole uh, activity of governmental space agencies has really blossomed into a, into an industry, um, uh, a commercial industry that uh, right. is doing things that were only done by governments in the past. And what would be the commercial use or uses of a space station these days? Well, the, the really exciting one would be research. Uh, there's uh, a lot of research that can be conducted in orbit around the Earth that simply can't be done anywhere else on Earth. There's the the Results of the experiments that are conducted are, are unique uh, to that environment. Uh, but there's also space tourism. There's also um, one of the things that I think we need to do, and I know we're get, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but um, one of the things I think is really critical for us uh, as, as Americans, as a nation, and as a, as a community of, of, of folks around the world is to establish uh, a transportation infrastructure between the Earth and our closest neighbor, the moon. Uh, and that would enable routine flights between the Earth and the moon. It would enable a permanent human presence on the moon. And I think there's a lot of commercial aspects of that as well. Um, you know, you could imagine a jump, a commercial jump off point in low Earth orbit that continues on to the moon uh, or even beyond. Sorry, so you're saying that a space station can be essentially kind of a midway point on a trip to the moon? Uh, 
It could be, yes. Uh, either a, a space station that's in orbit around the Earth or a space station that's in orbit around the moon. Uh, mm-hmm. um, okay, so uh, getting back to your trips and your experience, can kind of walk us through you know your very first flight into space and and what you what your takeaways were from that and then then from the space station yeah so the, so as i was saying before the first flight was uh, on space shuttle discovery uh, in 2008 and we brought up the largest part of the space station um it was the japanese laboratory um and we we had that in the payload bay of, of discovery and uh, we docked to the space station and the next day my spacewalk partner mike fossum and i uh, put on our spacesuits and head out and help uh, install the laboratory onto the space station um, it required two more spacewalks to complete the construction to complete that phase of the construction um, and when we departed the space station we left a uh, an operational laboratory on board that, that wasn't there before that so that was um really exciting um uh not only it was it my first flight it was you know the first time i ever put on a spacesuit and went out into the vacuum of space and so that was a that was a really incredible experience um so you were just like right out of the movie gravity you're you're out there floating just tethered with a a line to you to the space shuttle yeah, it's just like gravity, except for we didn't get hit by a bunch of space junk. But um, yeah, it's like mountain mountain climbing, where the first thing you do when you come out of the hatch is you you attach a hook to the space station. There's handrails all around the space station, so you attach a hook to the, the space station, and that hook is attached to a wire that's attached to a reel that is attached to you to your spacesuit. And as you translate away from the airlock, away from the hatch, uh, on these handrails. That reel is unwinding. It's about 55 feet long. And when you get to the end of that, uh, you put another hook down and you take that hook off and you go another 55 feet. And so it's, it's similar to mountain climbing in that way. So you have this, this tether uh, so that if you were to float, off, float away from the space station, hopefully that, that tether would uh, pull you back. Uh, if that doesn't work, if that tether breaks, for instance, uh, or you didn't hook it on correctly or <laughs> whatever. Uh, we do have jetpacks uh, that we can fly ourselves uh, back to the space station as long as we didn't push off uh, at too fast a velocity. Mm. And, and all that time you're traveling at about what speed? Uh, you're traveling five miles a second. So <laughs> 17,500 miles an hour. So when you see it on TV, it looks like you know we're just motionless, just floating there. But our bodies, the space station, everybody in the space station, are, you know, are traveling around the Earth every ninety minutes, which is seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. Right, and obviously zero gravity. Zero gravity, yeah. And what about what is the temperature there? It depends if you're in the shade or you're in the sun. In the shade, it's about two hundred uh, minus two hundred fifty degrees, and uh, in the sun, it's about two hundred uh, uh, minus two hundred fifty degrees in the shade and, and positive two hundred fifty degrees in the sunlight. Wow. So, so the, what the um, the umbilical cord essentially that you're connected to that's providing heat to inside so, your unit. Or? So we don't use an umbilical cord. Um, all we have what's called a pliss, which is a life support pack that we wear on our back. So we're basic. A spacesuit is basically a self-contained spaceship. Uh, so everything that we need are to keep us at the right temperature, to to get rid of carbon dioxide, to give us the oxygen, to supply pressure, uh, all of that is provided uh, internally by the suit. Mm. Have there been any bad situations in, on spacewalks in the past? Yeah, that, there have been. Um, you know, fortunately, no one no one has been seriously injured or lost their life through it. But you know, we've had uh, water leaks uh, into the helmet where uh, we were really worried about because it's not like you could just 
move your head that it's the water is floating in, in, in balls and if they get so on your mouth and your nose you can't you won't be able you'll drown effectively and so there, there's that that happened we had people who have um had uh there's there's uh, anti-fog um uh substance an anti-fogging substance that we put on the inside of the visor that got in their eyes and they they were um for the most part blinded but by, by it temporarily um but enough that they had to you know uh, take take actions to, to ensure the safety of the crew. Um, yeah, there, things like that. We're always worried about uh, the potential of micrometeorite uh, um, impacts. You know, all over the space station, you see craters, and uh, you know that there's um, there's always a chance that you can get hit by something while you're out there. So, so space station though has never suffered any really significant damage from space junk. Uh, I think that depends on what you mean by significant damage. I mean, there's pretty significant craters on, on there, but it it hasn't, to my knowledge, hasn't caused any major systems to go down or, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And all the space junk that you're referring to is all natural. We're not talking about remnants of satellites, et cetera, it's both. or, or it's are both. we? No, both. And so it could be just like micrometeorites, like little pieces of meteorites that broke off, or it could be satellites, or it could be little pieces of satellites or little pieces of rockets, you know, that uh, have launched into space. And now, you know, bolts and wires and, you know, all kinds of little pieces, you know, break off uh, and are traveling around, tra traveling around the world at hypersonic speed. Is is that becoming a significant problem? I mean, compared yes. to natural space junk, like how much is the man-made space junk compared to the natural space junk? Any idea? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, I don't know what the percentage is. I don't think anybody knows because I don't think we can measure the, the natural stuff. But we have a pretty good idea on the stuff that we've put there ourselves. And it's, it is a big problem. Uh, and it's a big problem that could cascade into an enormous problem. You know, if one piece of space junk hits another one, it could set off a chain reaction where now instead of having two pieces of space junk, you have 50 pieces of space junk and they hit things and it, it could take off and cascade to the point where we could get into a position where uh, space is unusable. We can't, we can't, it, it's, there's too much up there. Uh, and the, the odds of hitting something become too great that we can't even fly. Hmm. So we, we really need to get our arms around that. So put us in that space suit just for a moment with you, if you could, for that spacewalk. I mean, you know, if you, re obviously, I'm sure you do, probably will never forget just, you know, the feelings that you were having while you were doing that. And, you know, I don't know if there was any fear element to it or any panic element to it, but you just kind of walk us through you, how it felt. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredible experience. It's almost indescribable because there's no context with which to compare it to. Uh, so it seems a little unreal at first uh, because, you, again, you don't have anything to compare it to. Uh, I had the opportunity to do, in total, four spacewalks. Um, three of them were on my first mission. And I think one of the most memorable uh, experiences on any spacewalk for me uh, was on the third spacewalk of the first mission. And, and on that um, spacewalk, my feet were clamped 
to the end of the space station's robotic arm. Uh, and with me attached to the arm, with my feet attached to that arm, it was flown through a maneuver that we called the windshield wiper. And this took me across a large arc across the top of the space station and back. And at the top of this arc, I was about 100 feet above the space station, uh, looking down at this incredible complex uh, against the backdrop of our indescribably beautiful planet, 240 miles below. And it, it really took my breath away. I mean, that scene was just so strikingly beautiful. Uh, and I think one of the, what, what hit me, though, I think even more than the beauty of that scene was the incredible uh, human achievement that the International Space Station represents. You know, we talked about that 15 nations built the International Space Station. As we all know, some of these nations weren't always the best of friends. Some are on opposite sides of the Cold War, opposite sides of the space race. Some fought wars against each other. Um, but somehow they found a way to set aside their differences and do this amazing thing in space. And as I hovered there above the space station, I, I wondered what the world would look like. You know, How many fewer problems and challenges would we face if we could figure out how to have that same level of cooperation, that same level of collaboration, and bring it down to the Earth's surface? And I think we face so many critical issues and challenges on our planet right now in our country and, and around the world because of our inability to work together, our inability to set aside our differences, our, our inability to work towards common common good. Uh, and, um, you know, I think we're really hampered by our increasing divisiveness and polarization and everything else. It's really um, preventing us from solving these big challenges that we face. Who, who does, I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking of, perhaps individuals, maybe agencies, but I'd love to hear the names of individuals as far as who really deserves credit for putting together that. And I think it's important to kind of recognize because as you point out, we need more of that. So who were some of the key people or agencies that managed to put these 15 countries together to even dream this thing up, let alone then put it together and, and implement it? Yeah. I mean, literally there were tens and tens of thousands of people that that worked on the program, but one of the one of the interesting things was bringing the Russians into the space station program because back in the early '90s, um, the Russians weren't part of the station, and and as you remember, that's right about the time where the Soviet Union was was disintegrating, and uh, it was a really chaotic uh, situation, and and uh, the Russian space agency and NASA negotiated the final entrance to uh, into the space station program with tanks firing, firing in Moscow, you know, with, you know, in the midst of all this chaos. Uh, and, and in the midst of all that chaos, both sides, both Russia and the United States, felt it was so important to do this thing together that they risked, you know, life and limb to, to sign those agreements. And what was really interesting is back then in the U.S. and actually in, in other countries uh, around the world, there was a lot of dissenters uh, a lot of people who objected to bringing the Russians into the space station program. They said the Russians are doing X, Y, and Z. Until they stop doing X, X, Y, and Z, we have no business doing anything with them. And to be clear, what what time period are we talking about? Uh, early 90s. Okay. So that's when things, the Soviet Union was coming apart at right. that time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At the, at, at the same exact time. I mean, to the day, I mean, mm -hmm. as it was falling apart, the NASA was in so, Moscow. So presumably 10 years earlier, this would not have happened. Wouldn't have included uh, the Soviet Union, in other words. Uh, I, I don't know. We had Apollo Soyuz back in the 1970s. So, I, I think what's what's important to realize um, in this in this case, and and actually in Apollo Soyuz too, is that 
in the in the case of Russia and the United States and, and the other partners as well, uh, there was this willingness to set aside our differences and do this incredible thing in space uh, to build the International Space Station because we decided to push aside fear and embrace on wonder. We, we, we found something that we wanted to do together, the low-hanging fruit, if you will, and we decided to work on that together. And what developed from that is uh, a certain level of personal relationships, a certain level of trust, and um, now that has become uh, a platform that we can used to jump off and start to address the things that we don't agree on. But we tend to do the exact opposite. We tend to take those things that we agree on and, and use them as a stick to force the things that we don't agree on. And I think that that never works. And I really feel that there's two really powerful motivators of action. There's fear and there's on wonder. And both are really effective in the short term. You know, if a bear is chasing you, you're going to run pretty fast, right? But I think only on wonder works in the long term. On wonder uh, opens up the mind to rational thought. On wonder uh, opens up to new partnerships and new ways of doing things and new innovations. Um, where where a fear-based uh, mentality, I, I don't think, does that. And so, in the case of the International Space Station, in spite of all the differences we had, we decided that we wanted to work on this thing together. This thing that was, um, you know, the joint efforts of of exploring space together and, and and trying to push those envelopes. And because we did that, we we wouldn't have a space station right now if we didn't do that. Because after the Columbia disaster, the only way for us to send people to the space station was with the Russians on the Soyuz spacecraft. And um, there's a lot of redundancy and a lot of resilience that has been brought into the space station program because of that partnership. And it's not just a partnership in name. It is a there, there's not when we're on the space station. We're not. There's not the Russian crew and the American crew and the Japanese crew and the whoever. It's just the crew. We function as one single crew, uh, one seamless integrated crew. And it's not just the crew on orbit. It's the crew in uh, live in mission control rooms or around the country, all working together seamlessly uh, to achieve the objectives of the mission. The number one objective of the mission is to maintain this the safety and the and and the lives of, of the crews on board. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a really good example for us to, to for us to follow if we so choose who was on the space station with you and where were they from and and, and did everyone speak english it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Um, yeah, yeah, for the, for the most part. Um, so on my, on my first mission, uh, the crew of the, of the space shuttle was uh, six Americans and one Japanese. We had Japanese uh, Japanese astronaut um, Akira Shide uh, uh, came up with us. And when we got to the space station, uh, there was an, an American and uh, two Russians. That was my first mission. My second mission, when I flew up, um, I flew up with two Russians. And when we got on board, there was a Russian, an American, 
uh, and a, an Italian astronaut. And, and we had an overlap with them for about two months. They went home and then another Japanese astronaut, another American astronaut, and another uh, Russian astronaut came up. But we also had the opportunity to host the last two space shuttle missions, the, 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 flight of, uh, the last flight of uh, Space Shuttle Endeavor and then the last flight of Space Shuttle Atlantis, which was the last flight in the space station program. Um, and we had other nations that, that uh, came up on those shuttles as well. Mm-hmm. And and what was the feel? You were up there for about six months, right? For the, yeah. What what was the feeling that you had when you returned to Earth? <clears throat> well, it was I had mixed feelings. I mean, I was obviously uh, really excited to to get back to Earth and to see my family and my friends and my loved ones. Um, but I also knew that in all likelihood, I, I wouldn't get an opportunity to go back to space. So uh, I, you know, I. There's a lot of things that define the beauty of life on Earth that I missed when I was in space. Um, and some of it I realized before I left that, you know, I'm not going to hear the sound of the birds. I'm not going to see the mist on the lake. I'm not, I'm not going to see all these beautiful things uh, and experience all these beautiful things for the next six months because I'll be in the artificial environment of a space station. But there's also a lot of things that define the beauty of life in space that I miss to this day. You know, the, the weightless freedom of being able to uh, be in a microgravity environment, um, the incredible, unbelievable, indescribable view of our planet that's constantly changing because we're going around the Earth every 90 minutes, um, the, uh, being a part of this, this big uh, team that's doing great things uh, and being a part of something bigger than myself, um, uh, not that you have to go to space for that, but but that is certainly is is uh, the environment of space uh, and space travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know Anusha said that uh, she wasn't ready to to return, uh, but 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 I, I'm still moved by the movie Gravity and mm-hmm. and was moved by the ending where I think a Sandra Bullock finally returns to to Earth. Of course, she had a pretty traumatic experience out there in space, but, but you know, at the end of the movie, it's almost like she's hugging earth. Right. Right. And it really makes you kind of feel as, you know, earth is our home as opposed to simply where you live, your residence, but actually exactly. this feeling of earth itself exactly. being your home and, and you being yeah. of earth. And when I was reading some things in, in, about your book and prepping your book, I think you make the, the, the statement that we are of earth, not from earth. Right. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, I mean, uh, there's a lot of layers to that. Um, uh, In the most simplest terms, it's that, you know, when you look down at the planet from space, you get this sense that you're looking at a, a living, breathing organism. Right, you, you, and in a sense you are because, because the ecosystem, you know, life doesn't, we're, we're not living on life. We didn't come from somewhere else and get planted onto earth. We were born on earth from earth and so it's it's all part of one process um so life sprung up from earth it continues to spring up from earth uh and so you know if we if we fly a spaceship you know two thousand light years away from the earth uh in some sense the radius of the earth just became two thousand light years because we are part of earth um you can't separate uh Earth from us, and and it's interesting that you brought up that that word home, uh, and how, you know t- talking about Sandra Bullock in the movie Gravity, and I had a very very similar experience, and when I returned to Earth after the six month mission, and the Soyuz basically landed on the ground, it hit pretty hard, and it, it hit so hard that it bounced and it rolled and it flipped over, and now my window was pointed down at the ground, and out of the window I saw a rock, a flower, and a blade of grass, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm home. And what was really interesting about that thought, and I realized this right away, 
was I was home, but I was in Kazakhstan. <laughs> and so, so to me at that moment, my home wasn't just Houston, Texas, where at the time my family was waiting for me to return, home was earth. And our definition of that word home has profound implications for how we problem solve, how we treat each other, how we treat our planet. And what I realized um, pretty much right away was broadening that definition of the word home to encompass the entire planet doesn't come with a requirement to forget where we came from or national, cultural, religious, ethnic identities um, and affiliations. It simply means seeing those things in the context of the bigger picture, seeing them as a part of the overarching whole. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of our dialogue right now is we, we don't see the overarching whole. We just see the fragmented pieces that, that make up the whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it seems like politicians and a lot of other type of leaders, maybe even religious leaders, cause us to uh, divide us and, and put us into different groups as opposed yeah. to unite us because it serves their political purpose or the or economic purpose or whatever it may be it, make, it makes us easier to control yeah. i mean divide and conquer it's right. <laughs> it's been around it's been around for a long time so there's kind of two issues one is how do you get people more people to have that perspective and then what do you do with that so let's start with the first and i, I remember talking to anusha about this and she had some thoughts about it but how do you get more people to have the quote-unquote astronaut's perspective? Yeah, so um, my first book is called The Orbital Perspective, and the major tenet of the orbital perspective is that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. It, it helps. <laughs> it helps to be able to see the planet that from that undeniable vantage point um, and to see the thinness of the atmosphere where there's no doubt in your mind that we can put enough crap up into the atmosphere to, to change things, to, cha to change the planet. It becomes really, really obvious when, when you see that from space. But uh, Stay on that for a second. I'm just curious yeah. about that because obviously climate change, global warming is very controversial. So just expound on that a little bit. What, what, what do you mean by what you observe? And, so and, yeah. so I, I was selected as an astronaut in the year 2000. I didn't fly to the year 2008. And you know, we had Columbia in there and we, we shut down for a number of years. And But in any case, I, I listened to the equivalent of eight years of crews coming back from their missions saying, you're not going to believe how thin the atmosphere is. It's just... It's, it's indescribably thin. And so I had a pretty big expectation uh, for the thinness of the atmosphere, and it blew me away. I couldn't believe it. So you see the planet, and then you see this teeny tiny, almost barely perceptible, little teeny blue line hugging the Earth like the, the width of a paper. That's the entire atmosphere. And sorry, that's what you see once you've left the atmosphere? You're yes. looking back now? Yes. So you're seeing the Earth, and then you're seeing this cover of the atmosphere yeah, around, yeah, around Earth. like the skin like the skin of an apple i mean that, that's mm -hmm. the that's about and, and from space it looks incredibly thin is what you're saying right like a little you know gust of wind can blow the entire atmosphere away um and that's really sobering it's 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 and it's kind of scary to think that that paper thin layer is keeping every living thing on the planet alive and i've seen i've witnessed uh, pollution going up to the limits of the atmosphere i've seen fires whether they're crop burnings or forest fires going to the limits of the atmosphere spreading out over whole continents um, and so it's it's very very obvious from the vantage point of space that we have the capability to dump enough stuff in the atmosphere to change it. And, and and not to get too off subject, but but you talk about the ozone and the ozone layer. Is that the same thing as the atmosphere, or is that different? If you know, it's a part of the atmosphere. The ozone layer is a part of the atmosphere um, that protects us from from radiation. Oh, okay. I, I know there's a hole in the ozone in Australia or around Australia. I'm not sure if you know much about that, but 
I don't know what's created it or why it's there, but uh, I just know having visited Australia that the sun feels a lot different there. It yeah, feels yeah. really strong there. But I mean, back in the, I think it was the seventies, you know, we had a, a major crisis, a major environmental crisis where scientists determined that because of, of human activity that we we had put a hole in the ozone layer and we changed our, we changed our behaviors and we were able to, that's a really big success story uh, because um, we'd be living in a different world right now. Uh, it, it, not that we're out of the woods, but uh, things would be much more dangerous uh, than they are, they are right now had we not uh, mitigated that that problem. Okay, so back to how m more people can can get the orbital perspective. Yeah, I, I think I think you can do it in a, on a moment to moment, day day by day basis by simply realizing that you're part of something bigger. You know, every morning I wake up in my bed, but I also wake up on a planet. Uh, and, you know, growing up in New York, my universe, uh, when I was a kid, you know, didn't extend past the Hudson River. I mean, that's, that's as far as my, you know, my thinking took me. Um, but having the opportunity to, you know, not just travel in space, but travel around the world and meet people, meet people of different cultures, uh, and to see those stereotypes break down, to, to see, um, uh, empathy develop, um, I, I think, is, is, is a good way to do that. One of the ways we do that is by... Um it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. By listening, right? By being able to listen to folks. And so if somebody has. Uh, an opinion that is completely 180 out from your opinion, completely different than your opinion, we should, before we dismiss it outright, we should listen. We should we should be able to have a rational conversation with folks. Um, and I think one of the ways we, we were able to do that is by not identifying with our own positions as us, right? Because if you attack my, my opinion, um, we take that generally to mean you're attacking me personally. Uh, and that that leads to a different conversation. And so I think that all of us need to be a little bit more open to hearing um, differing opinions. And, and one of the things that's really important about this is the very diversity of our perspectives, because different opinions are, are probably coming from different perspectives, right? Um, and so that diversity of perspective is a source of great strength if we allow it to because when we see things from two different perspectives we're seeing it in stereoscopic vision right we're starting to see it in 3d we're starting to see the depth of things so the more perspectives that we apply to a to a situation to a problem to a challenge the deeper is going to be our understanding of that problem uh, and the richer and more effective are going to be the solutions that are derived from that and so what we tend to do is see these differences of perspective as, you know, things that I need to put a wall between. I need to separate myself. I need to attack. Uh, I can't recognize any merit whatsoever in this other perspective because if I recognize merit, then they're going to increase and I'm going to decrease. It's this, you know, zero sum game thing playing out. And that's not the reality of the world is that the very difference of opinions is what can lead to, to a real uh, strength of solutions. And, and if everyone came from the same orbital perspective, at least as a foundation, then it perhaps opens that up. 
more. Yeah, if, right? if, by, if by that you mean a willingness to take in the big picture, yes. Right, but, right. But what, in, my, in my new book that just came out a couple of weeks ago, Floating in Darkness, I, I borrowed a term from cinematography called a dolly zoom. And what a dolly, you know, you've seen it in Jaws and, and Vertigo and a, a bunch of different movies and, and in cinematography. What it is, is the camera is dollied back or rolled back at the same time and the same rate that it's zoomed in. Right. And so it, it, it serves to kind of challenge the viewer's perception of reality. It gives depth and height to a scene. Uh, but if you dolly zoom a situation or a challenge or a problem, what it means is you zoom out to the widest geographical area possible. But as you zoom out, you keep in focus the worm's eye details on the ground. You don't zoom out to the point where people become numbers on a spreadsheet or just a workforce or a voting block or whatever. They maintain, you know, they maintain their identity as valued members of our human family. It also has a temporal aspect to it. it and that means that we're going to zoom out to the widest time frame possible. So if we have a, a you know some type of piece of legisl legislation or some decision or or you know something that we're going to enact, uh, we need to look at what the long term effects of that are going to be. Uh, ideally, a multi generational effect. How is this going to affect our great grandchildren? Because right now, what we tend to be solely focused on is the next shareholder report, the next election cycle. Um, these things are important. So as we zoom out to the long term, we can't lose sight of that short term either. And then the last part of the orbital perspective, or the, of the Dolly Zoom effect, how it applies to the orbital perspective is to look at things at different perspectives. And that's that thought came to me on a spacewalk as I was looking down uh, at the Earth and realizing that my perspective was changing by five miles a second. And again, all that, all that we talked about, how those uh, varying perspectives gives us strength uh, to our problem-solving process uh, all need to be put into place. And so uh, you don't have to go to space to realize any of that. And, and by, by looking at the long-term and the short-term, looking at how things affect the local area, in addition to the general area, does does it does it help over here, but hurt over here? You know, all of these things have to be taken into account in the, in the big picture. Mm -hmm. When you communicate with other astronauts um, and talk about things like this, I mean, do you find that they kind of share the same orbital perspective as you do, and and you find that your conversations with them are qualitatively different than they are with people who have not experienced uh, it? I'm going to hesitate to answer that in a way because, because again, with the tenant that you don't have to go to orbit to have the orbital perspective, right? The, the answer is yes. I, my, my conversations uh, with people who have experienced the planet from space, uh, we're a couple of we're a couple of steps advanced in the conversation because we, we already have a, a similar experience to compare it to. And almost, think, sorry to interrupt, but almost uniformly people who have been to space, they do share this they, they they they're affected in the same way i i think they are to varying degrees and to varying realizations and with uh, at times differing lexicon to describe the situation but but you know i've i i, I i'm a filmmaker too and i've i've interviewed uh astronauts uh and we've asked them you know have did you experience um you know, did you did going to space change you? And they would say, "Oh no, it hasn't changed me at all." And then they'd spend the next fifteen minutes talking about all the things that have changed in, <laughs> in them since since going to space. So, so I, I think that's the case. But again, you don't have to go to space to realize any of this. And that, that you don't. There are conversations you could have with folks where um, where where they are on the same sheet of music that they do understand that there's a there's a, a local picture and a big picture that have to be integrated there's a long term and a short term that have to be integrated uh and and all those other things and that go ahead i'm sorry 
Well, sorry. Yeah. So I was just thinking, so kind of back to the idea of, okay, how do we give more people this perspective? Some people might intuitively have it, or some people might have watched Gravity, which was kind of the case for me and and, and, and thought I picked up a little bit of it, right? Um, but how, how do we give give it to more people? And the thing that kind of strikes me is is school, that that if you could yeah. give it to, to children, uh, I don't know what age would be appropriate, but um, is is there much of an effort there? I, I think... I think there is, but I think um, I think there's lots of things that we could do to help uh, give people that perspective. But I think the biggest thing we could do is stop preventing them from getting that perspective. Because really, if we just I think it's the natural state. I think the natural state of humans is to have this big picture perspective. I think that we artificially um, uh, retard that development. We artificially um, prevent that that growth from happening. And, and we do that in our, you know, hyper-polarized divisive world that we live in, where we're all placed in our own echo chamber walled boxes um, by the algorithms that determine, you know, <laughs> what, what things we're going to see on social media, yeah. for instance. Although we've needed great scientific uh, advances because we used to think the world was flat, <laughs> right? So thanks to scientific expansion and being able to do what you did, et cetera, we're now kind of, we are opened up to this. So while at the same time we've been opened up to this, to your point, we're, we're not embracing it because we're being uh, taught to focus on our little world our yeah, own but individual the, worlds. the perspective the world perspective or whatever you want to call it the perspective is not the end point the, the end point is to be a fully functioning society to be a fully functioning species that's embedded into the biosphere called earth and uh, you know part of that is developing empathy and compassion uh, and understanding of other people's perspectives and you know that, that that's the end point and science you know that's that's kind of separated from scientific advancement. I mean, um, that you don't need scientific, you don't need any more technological advancement to be able to, to incorporate empathy and compassion and understanding uh, and rational thought into, into conversations. I think, unless I'm just invented this in my head, but I, I, I thought I heard about an effort to use a, a 3D and, and maybe these 3D goggles that would give the... Um, ability of somebody to kind of really feel like they've experienced going into space. Have you heard about something yeah, like yeah. that? I mean, it would be great if, if, if it could be done. Yeah, there's all kinds of efforts to use technology like 3D um, to do that. But, you know, one of the missing pieces of that is the weightless part of it. Because um, that's, it's not only the view that you see out the window, it's the fact that you're detached from your view, right? So imagine that you're on the rim of the Grand Canyon or sitting on a beautiful beach looking at the sunset. Uh, no matter how sublime the beauty of that scene is, gravity is pushing you down into the scene. You're, with, you're within the frame of the masterpiece, right? But when you're in space, you're outside of the frame. You're, out, you're outside of, of, you know, you talk about you can't, you can't solve a problem while you're still inside the problem, right? So you're outside of the challenges, you're outside of the problems, you're outside of the masterpiece of beauty that you're seeing. And I think... Uh, Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Being weightlessly, weightless, uh, you know, floating there weightless and seeing that sight is, is part of the experience. Uh, and, and, and that's the ability to be physically detached from the earth. Um, but having said all that, you know, I think all of these efforts, whether it's uh, three, you know, VR, uh, AR, um, you know, uh, there, there is zero G aircraft that can be incorporated into it. There's all kinds of simulators that are being developed. Uh, all of those things can help uh, with that. Mm -hmm. So um, what, what do you kind of see as your mission at this point? Uh, you know, as far as, you know, I know you wrote these two very impressive books and, you know, what, what do you really trying to achieve and, and what's maybe more importantly what, what is the end game because to be honest it all sounds great in theory right but in practice it sounds like uh, unlikely so i guess a what do you think you're trying to accomplish and b what, what are we trying to get to sure so i i left uh, nasa in 2013 and i left for the singular reason to be able to share full-time unencumbered uh, this view of our planet, uh, view of our world, view of our society um, that was given to me when I when I went to space. And so everything I've done since leaving NASA was done with the objective, with the motivation to uh, figurative, figuratively or literally transport people to this higher vantage point. You know, this vantage point where all the pieces of the puzzle come together. So I've, I've written three books now, The Orbital Perspective, Floating in Darkness, and I have a children's book uh, called Railroad to the Moon coming out. I started painting. I uh, started making films. Uh, I, I do public speaking and consulting all around the world uh, because I really do believe that this vantage point, this perspective, uh, has uh, incredible uh, implications for pro our, the problem-solving process or how we solve our biggest, most seemingly intractable problems. And I think um, the reason why we still face so many critical issues and problems on our planet, despite the fact that I, uh, you know, I think we have ample technology and resources to solve those, those problems, is because of our inability to work together. And so uh, my end goal is, try is to trying to nudge society uh, through every way possible to start uh, setting aside our differences and work together towards a common good. Um, and, you know, <laughs> maybe to address uh, uh, one of your points is, you know, you don't, you don't think this is going to be successful. It depends on what your definition of success is, because, you know, if, if, my endpoint goal is to make every, you know, all nations, all organizations uh, get together, have Republicans and Democrats get together and uh, kumbaya and, and get together, then obviously that's, you know, that's kind of uh, unrealistic. But if I, if I could share a story real quick, um, because I, I think, I think that most, if not all the people in the world uh, want to leave this place a little bit better than they found it. They, they want to make things better. Um, and I think a lot of times people don't uh, set out to make that difference is because they, they don't think that they possibly can. They say, what can I possibly do? I'm one person. The, the challenges and the problems are, 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 are so big. But what, I, what I've come to realize is that, you know, leaving a legacy, you know, we're all taught to leave a legacy, you know, let everybody know that you're here. 
but living a legacy as the world teaches us uh, a legacy, what a legacy is, I think is in the end meaningless. You know, every great statesman, every great movie star, you know, every great scientist eventually is, is going to be forgotten. Every great accomplishment, you know, physical accomplishment, every great cathedral, the great pyramids eventually are going to be re reduced to dust. But where our world will be 100,000 years from now and where it would have been had you not lived are going to be vastly different. Different, And I think that we are more powerful than we could ever imagine. And one of the ways to think about this is imagine that uh, a giant asteroid is coming towards the Earth. And it's, it's so big that if it hits the Earth, it'll destroy all, all life on Earth. If we knew about that soon enough, we wouldn't have to send Bruce Willis and a, you know, a team of astronauts to go blow it to smithereens. We could send a small spacecraft and with the nudge equivalent to the weight of a feather, give that asteroid just a little nudge. And over the course of its travel to the Earth, that could result in thousands of miles of mist distance, saving every living thing on the planet. And so every day, uh, every moment, every action, every thought, every word, every deed that we do ripples out in all directions. Uh, and affects not only the trajectory of our own life, but the tra trajectory of our entire world. Um, and, you know, 100,000 years from now, that that's going to make me a big difference. And so all I'm trying to do, and I judge my success at the end of each day when I set my head on my pillow, did I make more positive nudges today than negative nudges? And uh, I think all we could ask from folks is to to make more positive nudges. So is part of it advocating for more space exploration because, um, you know, it, it, it does sort of serve the ends that you are seeking in theoretically bringing us together? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. Um, I think uh, one of the best and, and uh, most effective uh, investments we can make in our future is through space exploration. Uh, I think that has the biggest payback to, to life on Earth. And so... Uh, and it, and it has, sorry, the, the, the dual benefit, I think you would argue, right? That just as the space station brought these 15 countries together, as long as we're not constantly battling in space, if it's not Star Wars out there, yeah. uh, if it's done in a unified way, it has the, the dual benefit of all the knowledge we gain while bringing us together. Yeah, there, there's the there's the unifying effect of space exploration because it's built on the foundation of on wonder. There's all the scientific and technological advancements that come from um, the space program. There's also the fact, or not the fact, my opinion, <laughs> that the more people that have the opportunity to see the planet from that vantage point, the the better off we're all going to be here on on the Earth. Right. Um, so you're a big fan of the space travel going on, or the, the tr space tourism, I should say that. That's going on. I, I am a fan of it, and I think that it's it's the baby steps, uh, the first steps, if you will, of uh, a blossoming um, uh, space travel industry, where space travel will hopefully become as commonplace as air travel. Uh, and I think you know, if you look back in the early days of aviation, it was it was not a common thing that people flew on an airplane. It was a very special event by you know really uh, select people. Uh, now we don't think twice about hopping on an airplane and flying anywhere in the world. I think we're uh, potentially uh, on the verge of that uh, happening in space space travel. And by the way, not to nitpick, but I, I'm I'm just curious, like these Virgin Galactic flight that they had, and then what what was the what's the Bezos uh, company? Um, Blue Origin. Blue Origin. Are <clears throat> they truly going far enough up in space to, in your view, truly get the perspective? Because it it seems like yeah, they see the curvature of the Earth, but I'm not sure they're really seeing just Earth. Yeah, they're, they're, they're certainly not seeing the whole planet hanging in the blackness of space. Neither are we on the space station. Uh, you got to get a lot farther away from the space station. But 
the the biggest difference is not necessarily how far away from the earth you are it's how fast you're going and so with with uh, jeff bezos and, and, and richard branson on their respective flights they went to about 3500 miles an hour uh, that's pretty fast, uh, but to but to get, stay in orbit, to be in orbit, you have to go to seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. So I think they flew high enough to get a brief glimpse at what it looks, what the planet looks like from space. You know, on their launches, they watched the sky turn from blue to black. Uh, they saw the curvature of the Earth. They saw the thinness of the atmosphere. They saw our sun in a black sky, not a blue sky, and that you know they saw our sun as a star, um, and so that. I think that's a, enough to give you this sense uh, that I'm looking at a planet. I'm not just looking down from an out, you know, from a high altitude airplane. I see that the, that there's a planet. There's a planet in space. Uh, the planet is against the black, the backdrop of of black, the blackness of space. That could be a very, very profound experience. It's an experience in those cases that doesn't last very long. It's just a few minutes. Um, but where that again, these are baby steps, um, and you know, efforts like SpaceX and other other orbital companies uh, are 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 taking people to orbit, um, and so um, that's where you go to space and you can stay in space. So it, it it kind of raises an interesting question. We work together, fifteen countries on the space station, but is that really the best model? for advancements in space travel because we all know about free market competition and how good that can be at finding advances and that's sort of the model we've got going right now there's this element of kind of market competition in going to space uh and not so much the okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Countries cooperating thing. Okay. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, and, uh, you know... I think what, what government space agencies are uniquely um, able to do is to do things with a very, very long return on investment, you know, 20, 30 year return on investment. There's not a lot of commercial activities that will make significant expenditures with, with that long of a, a return on investment. And so what I see not only is, uh, well, what I hope for is not only increased international cooperation amongst the various governmental space agencies, but I also hope to see uh, more uh, pr public-private partnerships, so that you have the best of all worlds. You have the best of the of the free market marketplace. You have the best of the long-term vision of the of the of the big uh, and the and the financial backing of the big government space agencies and the and the history and the expertise of those agencies as well. Uh, you know, even you know, if you look at SpaceX, for instance, SpaceX has has gotten. Uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars from the U.S. government um, to spur that commercial market. Um, so uh, it's going to be a it's going to be a public-private partnership for at least for a while. Mm -hmm. And right now you've got, unfortunately, some developments going in the wrong direction as far as the countries working together. Isn't there, there recent news that Russia and China are planning something together that doesn't include the U.S.? Yeah, and I don't, and I don't know if it doesn't include the U.S. because uh, the U.S. the U.S. has prohibited uh, any cooperation in space with China, so um, I, I think that's kind of on us. 
<laughs> so uh, I'm of the impression that we need to be cooperating, uh, you know, not just with Russia, but with everybody uh, in, in this in the space. Uh, so you business. would put aside your view is put aside all differences, whether it's trade, whether it's human rights, you, you know, they, they, they've got concentration camps or whatever's going on. Because there's lots to complain about, but yeah. you know, uh, among countries. But you would say, "Hey, guys, when it comes to space, we put all that aside." And yeah, no, I mean, there's lines. I'm not saying that there's not lines that that uh, countries would cross that would prevent us from doing business with them. But the Chinese are going to do amazing things in space. They're going to do them with or without us. If we if if they do them without us, we'll be able to see what they're doing, but we won't know why they're doing it, and we won't have insight into their programs. And so, uh, you know, I think it's to it's in uh, our national interest to be cooperating uh, with the Chinese uh, in the space program. And I think, uh, you know, there's uh, there's it's not not like we're going to be giving a lot away either. I mean, it's it's uh, most of this stuff is you know is is known is out, out in the public domain is is. Um, I, I think there's a lot to gain and there's not very much to lose, uh, in, in that sort of thing. And I think, uh, I think the way to go is together. I really do. I think, I think we've proven that with the international space station program. Uh, and it, it leads to a safer world. It leads to a, it, it leads to, um, more capabilities in our space program. It leads to more redundancy, more resiliency. Um, and, you know, I think we, I think we should be doing this together. Well, we're up against your hard stop. I'll just kind of get your final thoughts on this kind of something funny that occurred to me that, you know, whenever we think about have we been visited by aliens or from another planet, we always think of them as a monolith that it's basically the representative, the Martians have come. We don't know what would have happened on that planet, you know. How did they get here? Was there a bunch of fights over who was going to get here first in, in free market competition or or, or what? So uh, working together is probably the best way to travel far, right? Exactly, Alexi. And I mean, I think we would we would come together pretty quick if we had some um, obvious, undeniable existential threat. Yeah, uh, that was coming at us. So, yeah. And do we have that yet? We don't. I, have well, that. I would I would <laughs> argue that I would argue that we do. Uh, yeah. But but that's why I said undeniable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You'll have to listen to some of our Tic Tac UFO episodes uh, on that. But that's well. Very what I was saying, stuff. I was saying we have our own we have our own existential. Oh yeah. That uh, we don't need aliens to to create. We we've we've created them ourselves. Thank you again so much to Ron Garan. You can check out his book, Floating in Darkness: A Journey of Evolution, anywhere you buy books, other than Amazon. It's on Amazon, but again, we don't recommend you buy from Amazon. They've banned too many books that uh, are important books for people to access. Thank you to our producer, Michael Parker. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Hidden Truth Show. Thank you for listening to The Hidden Truth Show with Jim Breslow. You can find us at hiddentruthshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hidden Truth Show. Join us again next week for another episode of Hidden Truth Show with Jim Breslow. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.